0: This is Contour Radio from Contour.scot. Hello listeners and welcome to the latest episode of the Enemy Within podcast. My name is Pete Remand, and I'm joined as always by my co-host James Foley. This week we are going to be talking about the late Marxist historian Mike Davis who died on October 25th of this year. His work was incredibly broad, influential, and today what we're going to do is we are going to discuss what, in our opinion, are his top three books that you absolutely have to read. He wrote about such a broad array of topics. We'll talk about some of those throughout the podcast, but we are going to do a top three. James, you were not too happy. You felt this was a bit Buzzfeedy doing a top three.
1: I genuinely am despairing for the state of this podcast that we have gone as uh, sunk as low as to have a top three structure. I don't know, it's BuzzFeed or I was going to say it was like The Guardian, but even The Guardian doesn't generally stoop this low. It's more like The Independent.
0: Well, to be honest, I actually was more inspired in this front by sports podcasts. I listen to a lot of sports podcasts, and sometimes I feel like political podcasts should be more like sports podcasts, which is
1: why I suggest it. And I appreciate you going along with this? Well, I mean, I mean, you put it like that way. When it's more populist like that, I kind of appreciate it a little bit more. But why he is middle brow, as you know, I'm okay with a low brow, and I'm okay with a high brow. But it's the Buzzfeed middle brow that really pisses me off.
0: Well, we're gonna go for low brow with maybe a bit of high brow thrown in. Listeners, you can decide on whether we actually achieve that or not. So moving on to Mike Davis himself, I think he's an absolutely fascinating character. He is one of that generation of socialists who were schooled by the politics of the 60s and 70s. And he is one of that great generation of Marxists that unfortunately is slowly dying out. James, has has his work been particularly influential for you?
1: It certainly was. In positive ways... And also in negative ways, in the sense that I probably wouldn't have become an academic if it wasn't for people like Mike Davis. I came into academia with the illusion that there were loads of academics like Mike Davis kicking about. And it turns out there's just nobody that writes like that in academia whatsoever. And all the people that I thought were the most outstanding and brilliant academics weren't really proper academics at all. And actual academics can't write for Toffee um, and are rewarded as such for their inability to write and communicate properly. Whereas great writers like Mike Davis and so on tend not to have got the acclaim that they should have done, quite frankly, in their careers.
0: It's really interesting because Davis, in some respects, is so celebrated because of the popular influence of his books, even though he hasn't necessarily been celebrated in the Academy to any great extent. But after City of Quartz comes out, this is his book, which we'll talk about later. A little spoiler there. But his book City of Quartz comes out a couple of years before the riots in LA over the murder of Rodney King. And he gets branded the prophet of doom because in City of Quartz, he's effectively predicted. He predicts that this is the trajectory of the city. So in some respects, he gets that level of a clue, but not in the academic world.
1: Yeah, he also gets a clue as the guy that predicted coronavirus. I mean, Prophet of Doom really actually does fit pretty well for him. Completely. And um, sometimes there's always this pressure when you're writing, which I certainly felt and kind of kowtowed to a little bit uh, in producing some of my books. You have to present this optimistic prognosis or program for the future or something like that. And while I admire Davis's respect that he has for ordinary and working class people, I also admire the degree to which he is just ruthlessly and in an almost contrarian way apocalyptic in some of his predictions rather than saying oh here's all the optimism this is this lovely struggles that are taking place that are just going to mushroom into something lovely he doesn't really present that type of fake optimism most of the time
0: he did an interview in the year before he died with the LA Times and there's a great quote on this actually so I'm really glad you brought this up because the interviewer asks him how do you hold on to hope and this is Davis's response To put it bluntly, I don't think hope is a scientific category. I don't think that people fight or stay the course because of hope. I think people do it out of love and anger. Everybody always wants to know, are you hopeful? Don't you believe in hope? To me, this isn't a rational conversation. I try and write as honestly and realistically as I can. I'm writing because I'm hoping the people who read it don't need dollops of hope or good endings but are reading so that they'll know what to fight, and fight even when the fight seems hopeless. I think that is a really nice summation of the way he approaches the project of writing. I think that within that small quotation there is something of a a manifesto for how we should all be exploring our intellectual endeavours.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess like when my own book most recently came out, we were accused of being too gloomy and apocalyptic and so on, but my real regret is not being gloomy and apocalyptic enough, and it's kind of well summed up in that quote there from Davis, isn't it? You know, I did feel like there was this pressure that we needed to give this element of hope, when clearly it was fucked. Do you know what I mean? And clearly, we see more and more that it is entirely fucked, as a all the sort of post twenty twelve movements that had any optimism about them in British politics kind of are. And my regret is lacking that level of intellectual ruthlessness and honesty at times that Davis had. We're not a patch on Davis in that respect.
0: I mean, he's someone to aspire to, certainly, even if we're not a patch on him. So a little bit about Davis's biography. We won't spend too long on here, but he is a really interesting character. In his teenage years, which are like the late 50s and very early 60s, he wasn't political at all he it was a self-described alcoholic who was more interested in drag racing and like stealing cars with his friends and racing
1: them than he was in politics or anything like that i think this is very admirable see when you see these characters that have got into politics particularly mainstream politics but even leftist politics too early it's really a sign of degeneration in my view I know people disagree with this and say, oh, it's terrible that you have this gerontocracy where you have Biden and Trump and all that. And I get that point of view, right? Having said that, see if you're a proper leftist, like going into your 40s and 50s and 60s and so on, you have actually had to develop as a character properly and you have actually had to defend yourself over a concerted period of time. And therefore, people could have a greater degree of trust in that, I think, to an extent. As opposed to your sort of characters that come through politics at an early age, who often turn out to be the most ruthless grifters when it comes down to it.
0: And Davis had stints working
1: as a meat packer, as a
0: truck driver, and all that sort of thing. It seems like the first, the really big moment for him was attending a demonstration, and it was a demonstration organized by CORE, that's the Congress of Racial Equality. And at the demonstration, well, it's just a basic civil rights demonstration, the demonstration's attacked by a bunch of sailors who start trying to douse all the protesters in, in lighter fluid, and they end up getting saved by a contingent from the Nation of Islam. And at this point, he decides to get politically active. To get politically involved. From this point on, though, he's really involved in CORE. He's involved in SNCC, that's the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, one of the radical movements that emerged out of the 60s. And by the time he gets to his late 20s, he decides to go back on a union scholarship because he's been working with unions as well to start doing his PhD. And, um, he never gets a PhD which is effectively his book, Prisoners of the American Dream. I'm sure he updated it a little bit, but it's fascinating to think that another book that we'll get onto, a fantastic book, wasn't actually accepted by his PhD committee, which again, tells you a little bit about academia these days.
1: Think of the utter shite PhDs that have been published over the years, man. Have you ever read a PhD? Yeah, I mean,
0: obviously, well, I'm writing mine just now. So uh, unfortunately, I'm reading a bad one
1: (laughs) as I go. My PhD is coming out as a book next year and listeners can make up their own minds whether it's better than Mike Davis's uh, Prisoners of the American Dream. Hint is not.
0: So one thing is, I think we'll talk a lot about today is how beautiful a writer he is. His turn of phrase is absolutely incredible. And in the same interview I mentioned earlier, the one in the LA Times, there's another little bit on writing, which I must admit did make me feel better. And for all of you out there who have sat in front of a computer and had experienced the blank screen and trying to get started, I think this is an inspiring little quotation. This is what he says. Learning to write is the most difficult thing I've ever done. It involved sometimes a whole ream of paper on an electric typewriter just to get the first sentence. It was absolutely brutal. And then the interviewer says, so why did you do it? And he responds, Because I was such a miserable failure as an organiser and speaker. The first speech I ever gave was at an anti-war rally in Stanford in 1965. I was working on this crazy SDS project in Oakland. I succeeded in driving away three quarters of the crowd within about five minutes. I spent years in tiny little groups trying to regroup with even smaller groups, going to every demonstration, trying this and that, and writing became the one skill that was useful for political activity for the movement. It's nice to know that someone who I consider to be such a brilliant writer has had those struggles, and also that he's not great at everything, and yet he honed the skill because he wanted to be able to serve a movement, to serve a cause, and he saw this as a way that he could positively contribute because he wasn't that great at anything else.
1: Yeah, I always wondered why he didn't do public speaking, but there you go, it's because he was rubbish at it, which... uh you know reassuring i suppose to many people because you can't be good at everything can you you get good at things by not being good at other things i think that's a general rule there
0: so yeah from here davis is an activist a writer he manages to get a job in academic environments in various places but most importantly at this point he starts to produce some absolutely fantastic books so let's get on the books, James. And before we get onto the top three, though, I think it's important to shout out a couple of honourable mentions of books that didn't make our top three, but are still absolutely fantastic. The first one that we'll mention is his book on COVID, which, as you said before, James, in many ways predicts the coronavirus. Davis really lives up to his tagline of the prophet of doom. Could you tell us a bit about this book?
1: Well, it's it's really the the avian flu book, I suppose, probably, because he actually did produce a book about coronavirus after after that pandemic kicked off. That's right, yeah. Because he was in huge demand as a speaker and so on, because people remembered him as one of the kind of people who had made these predictions long ago. And maybe he probably got it wrong about the timing, right, and about the specifics of it. But basically, as I understand it, if I remember the book rightly, I actually did read the avian flu book at the time. And at the time, I was like, maybe Davis has kind of lost the plot a bit with this book, to be honest. Like, I mean, there was a lot of things that I found at the time to be perceptive and accurate and so on about the uh, risks that are attached to capitalist globalization, the retreat of the state, and of public health capacity and the sort of impact of deregulation world air travel etc etc like much of it struck me as convincing at the time but i was also like this seems like the sort of mad apocalyptic predictions that you get off a conspiracy theorist then of course what happens is the pandemic of 2020 onwards and i think he did rebadge a broadly similar thesis that was specifically about the coronavirus outbreak at that time which he did write about a great deal and was the left's global authority on it these aren't his greatest books or the greatest examples of him as a writer but it is clear that he understood the dangers risks that were attached specifically to coronaviruses in general because there had been other coronavirus outbreaks prior to this one um in china and so on He understood this far earlier than anyone else, particularly on the left, and he understood it in political terms. Hence, I think, when people were trying to narrate what was going on after 2020, he became something of an authority on that whole crisis.
0: I believe in that last book on COVID, to the extent he makes any more predictions, he is suggesting that global societies are far more susceptible to pandemics now and that he would expect that there will be more outbreaks like the coronavirus, which obviously isn't very optimistic or hopeful, but
1: could well be accurate. I mean, I guess it's a sign of his diversity as a writer and a thinker, and the degree of which he clearly spanned so many disciplines. He was so interested in epidemiology and so on. But it's also a sign of the fact that, despite the fact that he obviously did predict this massive global event that would transform our societies for several years, these don't really rank amongst my favourite of his books at all.
0: So getting on to the next one we'll mention, it is Prisoners of the American Dream, which we already mentioned. And this is an amazing contribution to the study of American history. Probably what it's most famous for is its engagement with the question of American exceptionalism. That is, why did a Labour Party or a social democratic party never emerge in the US as it did in all comparable advanced capitalist societies? And the first half of the book is, in many respects, dedicated to answering this question. Now, this is a hotly debated topic in American history, historiography, and so on. And there are a lot of explanations as to why this never happened. Some theses focus on the American West and argue that it was effectively a pressure valve, that the type of people who may have joined a party like this ended up going out to the lawless West to expand the frontier because they could escape the government and so on. There are other theories like perhaps liberalism is just fundamentally imbued in the American ethos. There's another thesis that American workers were just better off. Davis takes, in many respects, a far more historical approach, and he synthesizes a lot of these theories and places them in the context of different cycles of class struggle. And he argues that there's not one explanation that is, if you like, some static, independent variable that explains this whole thing. Rather, he looks at periods of class struggle, their defeats, the way in which those defeats enter the structure of opportunities for future moments of class struggle, and the way all these different explanations work, particularly at different times.
1: I wonder if listeners maybe have any insights as to whether there's ever been a better rejected PhD thesis. I think that's an interesting question. I can't think of one myself. I can, but that's probably going to reveal us as being systematically pretty dumb. That's true. There probably is obvious examples. I mean, we probably should have Googled this first.
0: So moving on to our top three Davis books that you have to read. And we'd be very interested to hear from listeners if you think a different ordering would be better if we've missed out a book. We've missed out
1: lots of his books. Uh, So please do write in and correct us if you think we're wrong. Wait a minute, Pete. Are the top three in order? I mean, is there a number one? I, I did not realize this was going on. There is. There's a top three, James. I did tell you about this, and I think you might disagree no, with uh,
0: the way it's going. But yeah, we're we're going number three, number two, number one.
1: All right, okay. I did. I, can I just like put as a caveat that like I'm not ordering these books. Like any ordering system is down to P alone. Yeah, that is true. I'll be honest, listeners. I take full responsibility. So, without further
0: ado, coming in at number three is Mike Davis's book, Planet of Slums. This it was an incredibly influential book. And basically, the framing that Davis sets up is that in the very near future, in the next couple of years after he's writing, a human will be born in a city or someone will move from the countryside to, the, to a city. And that will be the tipping point at which for the first time in human history, a majority of people have lived in an urban rather than rural setting. And so he's setting up this discussion of the proliferation of huge slums around the world with this fascinating point about the macro-level transformations that we've seen in
1: our society. Sometimes we think about there being a sort of declining working class, and yet, like, this sort of key mechanism of capitalist modernization and transformation, of course, is the movement of people from rural to urban areas to become this sort of dispensable proletarian workforce. And it's clear that, like, on a planetary level, this now, as Davis is pointing out, in a way, this now constitutes the majority of people for the first time. And I believe that's way back in two thousand or something like that, right? This is he's talking about this as being a sort of millennium type thing. So we're long past that now. I don't know what the actual numbers are, but it's not quite a proletariat as maybe imagined in you know nineteen sixties Marxist sociology in terms of people that are becoming more and more socialized into massive workplaces in manufacturing industry and so on. It's this sort of big layers of ultra poor, dispensable people existing on the peripheries of already quite poor cities in the global south. And this is the kind of the new reality of living conditions for so many people. They're being driven there often by environmental factors or by decline or transformations in agriculture or whatever it is, but they're not becoming socialized in the old-fashioned idea of an urban industrial proletariat, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And Davis goes into a lot of detail describing the conditions that people live in, in the slums, what these shanty towns are actually like. And he describes these places where, for the most part, child labour is the norm. Child prostitution is commonplace. The state doesn't really enforce the rule of law. So gangs and paramilitaries rule in places where there's no access to clean water or sanitation, let alone education or democratic institutions. So this is... A land of the informal economy, if you like. And as a result, as you say, James, because they haven't been socialized into the formal economy in a way that classical Marxism talks about proletarians, they have far less power. They don't have power at the point of production to exert their collective strength on any level. And therefore, the people, the residents of these slums are much harder to organize.
1: I mean, the sheer scale of these things is absolutely breathtaking. And I just think it's beyond the imagination of so many of us to even think about all these absolute mega-cities that have sprung up often in the last couple of decades, sometimes from a state of being very limited prior to this, especially in some of the Chinese cases, but also in many of the Africans and Indonesia and other areas as well. But when you're thinking of all these cities that have populations in excess of 20 million, it just boggles the mind to even consider what that looks like. I've never really visited many of these places in all honesty. Glasgow has a population of 600,000, and coming from Dumfries and Galway, I tend to think of Glasgow as a big city. So, you know, the fact that there's all these uh, cities with 20 million people that have suddenly risen up in the last couple of decades is just mental to think about. According to Davis, China added more city dwellers
0: in the 1980s alone than all of Europe in the entire 19th century, which is quite a staggering statistic. And another one that he mentions, which I, again, can't quite get my head around, is that he says that in the global north, 6% of city populations could be described as living in slums. But in the global south, of people who live in urban areas, 78.2% at the time of writing live in slums that really
1: boggles the mind you mentioned neoliberalism but it is quite extraordinary to think of all this happening at a time when theoretically you've got the retreat of the state from life it's not obviously the retreat of the state in its repressive capacity and so on china is slightly different because clearly the state has played a relatively major role in some of those transformations but in other areas It's quite spontaneous, the way that all this is happening, and thus the degree of disorganisation that this implies at an urban level is quite extraordinary as well.
0: And one of the other fascinating things that's documented throughout the book are the way elites, especially in the Global South, have responded to the growing number of slums and so on. So, for example, in places like Latin America, you have the proliferation of things like gated communities of highways and shopping malls that are only accessible to the middle classes, which they quite strictly police with private security. Effectively, a lot of the elites are trying to find ways to escape from the poor people of their own country, of the places that they live in. But it's got to the point now where the upper middle classes of Um, you know, Latin American cities, for example, really do inhabit a completely separate bounded world away from the people of their own nation. And you can sort of see why the basic national solidarities are breaking down. I think that process has been very well documented in Latin America. I do think you're seeing something similar, though, happening across the world in a multitude of places. So let's say go back to the Arab revolutions. What are the symbols that they use? They're national symbols. They are carrying Egyptian flags in Tafir Square, for example. And a lot of the slogans are focused on rejecting the elites of the countries as not being properly Egyptian. It feels like these societies have become so broken apart that what you're seeing are movements that are trying to reclaim the idea of the nation and say, look, this belongs to us. Egypt is ours. Egypt belongs to the people. There's, if you like, this nationalist moment at the start of a revolutionary process i think that's quite interesting i think it's maybe being driven by some of these processes that davis identifies
1: Uh, davis actually wrote a very interesting essay on nationalism and marxism in new left review which is well worth a read and kind of does reflect precisely what you just talked about there he also wrote a wee book called evil paradises which is precisely about these the, this kind of gated community type thing that you get often in third world cities and so on where the elite are trying to shut themselves off fortress style from the surrounding population. And I guess there's a parallel between the evil paradises and a sort of evil internationalism you get where the elites of all these different countries and our own sort of cosmopolitan upper middle class and elites here increasingly want to differentiate themselves from any type of link to or responsibility for the population beneath them and want to have a common idea of a sort of jet-setting cosmopolitan culture that is shared amongst this gated community type element that you get in so many of these cities.
0: There's definitely a parallel there with the Remain Brexit debate and certain sections of the Remain camp who pretty openly said, we feel more in common with the cosmopolitan's of France and Germany
1: than we do with the heathens in the north of England and so on. I think this is an increasingly common cultural phenomenon and one that the left should have absolutely nothing to do with if we're really going to re-establish ourselves as a serious force in any of these societies, whether in what was once called the third world or in the global north.
0: And just to finish off on... Planet of Slums. To me, the great contribution that it makes is as an agenda setter. There's a, a chapter, for example, on Cairo's City of the Dead, where a million people live in Mamluk tombs, using them as prefabricated housing, effectively. And there's a lot of descriptions of these sorts of realities. And he puts onto the agenda of debate, this huge phenomenon, which In the global north, in the first world, we basically don't think about, don't talk about, and he just sets out in such clear, concise, and biting description and analysis, the reality faced by this huge swathe of of the global population. And he does create a real debate around it. Uh, Academics have started writing about the same topic, and they sort of reject Davis a bit, like, oh, it's not deep enough. And yet they start engaging with this topic because of Planet of Slums. So even where academics have rejected it, they owe so much to him.
1: Absolutely. Okay,
0: then. Well, let's move on to our number two. And this is where, James, in the ordering, you might well disagree with me, because coming in at number two is what I think might be your favourite book, and that is City of Quartz. James, why don't you tell
1: us what the book is about? Well, the book is about Los Angeles and... I suppose when I say that, people might think, well, that sounds a bit dull. It's just about one say, Like, why would that be interesting? But when you start thinking about Los Angeles, it is really a very extraordinary place that is, if you like, the centre of so many of the contradictions, cultural and otherwise, of contemporary capitalism. Obviously, and perhaps most notably, it's the centre of Hollywood and the whole imagination of the world is thus centred on Los Angeles in those terms. It's also the home to the entirety, basically, of film noir. And the interesting thing that's revealed by film noir is precisely that it's essentially the traditional, individualist, hard-boiled American culture filtered through the eyes of German emigres that went to the city during the rise of the nazis and so on and saw the world of american capitalism through a new european perspective hence the darkness in it and all these other things that combines with the sort of optimism of the american dream and the pursuit of success and all these other things so much brilliant culture that bears on the critique of american capitalism comes from here it's crazy to think that the Frankfurt School and Bertolt Brecht and the German Expressionist Directors and all that are there in Los Angeles at the same time, reflecting on the madness of American capitalism. And I guess what I love about the book is that it just so elegantly captures the contradictions of the whole of capitalism into one city. You forget how much shit has happened in relation to Los Angeles some of the time and how much of our cultural imagination is centered on it. I mean, think of contemporary racial politics. This is the place of OG Simpson, right? It's the place of the LAPD. It's the place of the Watts Rebellion. It's the place of Rodney King. Almost everything that we associate with the sort of Weirdness of contemporary racial politics and its origins in the 1990s can be traced back to Los Angeles, and the book just is the best book ever written about a particular city.
0: I'll be honest, James. I only read this book quite recently, and I had that reaction that you suggested that people might have, which was, "I'm not going to read a book about LA. I've never even been there. What's the point? Like, if if I'm planning on going there, maybe I'll pick it up." But I was blown away. When I started reading it, it is so fascinating. And you're absolutely right. LA comes to stand in for so much about how capitalism has changed and transformed and the contradictions, particularly of American capitalism. For example, he even yeah. talks about the expansion of the prison system and he writes about an early prison industrial complex way before this is something on the minds of academics and sociologists and so on. He's talking about how the development of prisons and locking people up becomes big business decades ago.
1: I think of all the degenerated the liberal fads of a post-1968 and even prior to that variety. I mean, think of Ayn Rand, right? Think of jogging. Think of new age, hippie bullshit and all that sort of stuff. It's all there. And obviously the existence of Hollywood is accelerating many of those types of things. But also the best of Hollywood is often a magnifying glass on all those cultural contradictions of capitalism. As I said, it's a great book insofar as it captures so much of that pop culture imagination while also being ruthlessly materialist in its sociology. It's also a great example of a Marxist methodology of the totality, right? Because like a sort of simpering version of Marxism would just be about centering the voices of the oppressed and so on. But it's clear that like he's captured the totality of bourgeois culture in this particular city in a very elegant way, while also appreciating the importance of class struggle and forming the reality of the city as well. I was really struck by that when reading it. It
0: feels very different to the people's histories that have become very popular today, which yeah. you know is history told from below. And Davis very much tells the story of LA from below at times, but interrelates that with what elite power is doing the processes of capitalism in the city and of cultural production and so on. And he weaves them together in what feels like such a compelling overall story. As you say, it's an analysis that really does encompass the totality of that city. Often, I wonder, really, when we're talking about the concept of totality, sometimes I'm like, what does that really mean? I actually think this is a fantastic example of how to do analysis
1: in that vein. I think part of what the totality means in this context is also that, you know, I'm going to sound pretentious when I say this, but it does make sense in LA that the imagination of the city is part of the reality of it. But it's also precisely what you have to critique. And again, that sounds ridiculously pretentious. But when you think of this as being the home of the whole imagination of American individualism, at the same time, it's being the home of the critique of these processes the home of all the bullshit of hollywood but also the home of chinatown blade runner Mulholland drive etc etc yeah i mean i just do love this book i think it made a big impression on me personally and it's um certainly one of the best examples of davis as a writer and i think it's an intrinsically fascinating subject beyond who's writing about it but he does very well succeed And bringing out these contradictions in a way that very few other writers could have done.
0: Want more like this? Subscribe to Contour Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Contra Scott. So, finally, James, this brings us on to number one, the number one Mike Davis book that you absolutely have to read. It is Late Victorian Holocausts. El Niño Famines and the Making of the Third World. This is in many respects another book about a topic that a lot of people might think, why am I gonna read about that? First of all, it's set at the end of the 1800s and early 1900s, primarily in the global south, about famines that I think most people probably haven't heard about. But these were some of the most consequential events in human history. Effectively, there was a series of famines that devastated Asia, North Africa, and Latin America. And Davis estimates, for example, that between 32 and 61 million people died as a direct result of these famines in China, India, and Brazil alone. So up to 61 million in just China, India, and Brazil. And the way in which free market policies were decided at this time, is because It seems that the historiography and the history that explained these events, many of them focused on the ideas that these were backward countries and they experienced famine because they hadn't been fully incorporated into a modern capitalist system. And Davis demonstrates that this isn't the case at all. In actual fact, it's at the point at which they are being incorporated into a a capitalist world system that these events take place. And in many respects, it's because of them. So, for example, between 1875 and 1900, this was the period that included the worst famines in Indian history, annual grain exports away from India to the UK increased from 3 to 10 million tonnes, which is equivalent to the annual nutrition of 25 million people.
1: It's a methodological tour de force. It shows his mastery of a huge range of social science, like disciplinary genres of social science, epidemiology, climate research, and all sorts of other things. It's interesting because it bears on the moral culpability of things that appear to be either random or systemic. I mean, obviously, for instance, we indict communism with a capital C, Joseph Stalin, Mao, other people, With the deaths of many people through famine, and rightly so, they should be held morally accountable for that. And it's something that is morally on the conscience, I believe, of many socialists too. By contrast, you have what seem to be just these random events related to weather patterns and whatever it is that are going on. Particularly in this study in the late 19th century in India and China that are accounting for the deaths of tens and tens of millions of people. And what Davis does very effectively is to demonstrate how these are linked so strongly, not just to the introduction of capitalism and the destruction of prior communal systems that had existed in order to manage famines previously, but also that he lays the responsibility down to specific decisions that are made by imperial authorities and so on to prioritise market mechanisms when famine relief could easily have saved so many people. A situation, of course, that will be familiar to people in Scotland who know a little thing or two about the Irish famine, which is the origins of how many of our families ended up in uh, Scotland in the 19th century.
0: Some of the decisions made by the colonial administrators were absolutely disgusting. You have in India, for example, the mass transfer of subsistence crops being transferred over to what was seen as a more um, profitable business, which was the growing of first cotton and then opium, because the British East India Trading Company gained a huge amount of revenue from growing opium in India and transporting it to China. All of these agricultural areas which are producing food that can support a population are changed over to the more profitable crops. And of course, that is hugely contributing to the mass famines that take place. And there are even instances that Davis documents in which they have grain in India and they realize it'll be more profitable to take it out of India and sell
1: it on the market in Britain. And of course, I suppose when he's writing this, he's probably thinking a great deal about the sort of IMF-imposed famines that did take place to a large degree across uh, much of Africa with the collapse of third-world projects after the 1970s, the debt crisis, and the structural adjustments that were imposed, which, for instance, would have included transferring food crops to cash crops, which subsequently, because the IMF told every fucker to do that, collapsed in price and then imposed mass famine on many, many areas of Africa. All part of a death toll that has just never really been calculated, partly because it is almost incalculable to think about that. But also something that is not attributed to the system of capitalism when so clearly it was imposed as part of a system of capitalist modernization on these places. As of course were these policies that you're talking about in Ireland and India, China, Brazil, and so on.
0: Another theme in this book that I think is absolutely fascinating is the end of the subheader of the title of the book, which is the making of the third world. And Davis makes the argument that it is in this period in history in which the third world is created. There has often been debate about why is it that the global north is so much richer than the global south, or the first world is so much richer than the third world. And of course, there are many explanations that emphasize imperialism, but in terms of periodizing it, Davis argues that it is in this period, this late Victorian era at the end of the 1800s and the start of the 1900s that creates the third world. And why does he say that? He says, and I'm quoting from the book here, a key thesis of this book is that what we today call the third world is an outgrowth of income and wealth inequalities that were shaped most decisively in the last quarter of the 19th century, when the great non-European peasantries were initially integrated into the world economy. As other historians have recently pointed out, when the Bastille was being stormed, the vertical class divisions inside the world's major societies were not recapitulated as dramatic income differences between societies. The difference in living standards, say, between a French sans and Deccan farmer, were relatively insignificant compared to the gulf that separated both from their ruling classes. By the end of Victoria's reign, however, the inequality of nations was as profound as the inequality of classes. Humanity had been irrevocably divided, and the famed prisoners of starvation, whom the Internationale urges to arise, were as much modern inventions of the late Victorian world as electric lights, Maxim guns, and scientific racism.
1: It's uh, interesting, and of course, we're talking largely about the great Asian civilizations when we're thinking about these mass deaths that did occur at this time. But it's also the period of the scramble for Africa and the extraordinary brutality that comes with that. I mean, there's the French, there's the English, but of course, the most brutal colonial administrators of all were the Belgians who massacred, I think, a half of the population of the Congo, I believe it was 10 million people, in an extraordinary and entirely capitalistic venture.
0: So, listeners, I'd thoroughly recommend this book. It is, as James mentioned before, a methodological tour de force, and it takes on a number of questions. The level of in- historical investigation and narrative history told. From the perspective of people going through this, and at the same time, the perspective of colonial administrators, imperialists back in Whitehall, and so on, and the decisions they were making, and the Smithian ideologies, and Malthusian ideologies that were consistently evoked as laws of nature to be gone along with, the first few chapters really focus on that. But then there is also discussion of the longer term structural changes that are happening both in the world system. And there's also extensive discussion around scientific debates, around El Nino famines, around weather cycles and so on. Trying to parse out the questions of how many of these deaths are as a result of natural causes versus conscious human action. I'd thoroughly recommend it to absolutely
1: anyone. Uh, Yeah, I recommend that you read this book it's not quite as good as city of quartz right but it's pretty good and you you can definitely buy it and read it and absorb its contents and compare and contrast it to city of quartz and see if you agree with Pete. yeah see if you agree i'll be honest i would go out on a limb here and i would say
0: i think that city of quartz is an absolutely brilliant book But I think late Victorian holocausts might be one of the greatest history books ever written. And I think that it should be on almost no matter the subject, on the reading list of every course, because I think that by understanding this moment, you have such a better grasp on why it is that the 20th century played out as it did. So listeners, I thoroughly recommend it. I recommend all of these books, but we'd love to hear your thoughts. So please do get in touch. Tell us if you think we're wrong about the ordering of the books, which would be your number one. And maybe you agree with James. Maybe it's City of Quartz. Maybe it's a totally different one that we haven't even mentioned today. Buddha's Wagon, for example, is a fun history of the car bomb, which gives you an idea of the breadth of topics that Davis wrote about.